Good morning. He reads like I preach. That was fast. Good to see you this morning. We're glad that you're here. Always uh, thankful. Appreciate your prayers and your thoughts about uh, me and my family and passing of Anthony, and thank you for that. We are continuing our discussion this morning about elders and uh, leaders, and we talked about that last week. Uh, our young people here are very astute, and they are listening, and we are appreciative of that. I was sitting in Bible class Wednesday, and a young person walked up to me, and he said, do you want to hear a joke? I said, yes. Yes, I do. He said, um, what flavor of ice cream is the favorite of elders? I said, I don't know. He said, Sunday. <laughs> Took me a second, too. I said, well, that's pretty good. I didn't think of that. Our title this week is Elders and the Eldership. Our outline is the charge of elders, the character of elders, and the conduct of elders. And time permitting, we'll talk about some practical things that God has done to help his flock uh, as well. I don't know of many more uh, topics that are more important to a congregation than elders and the eldership, and so we're glad to talk about that for a second week. We talked last week about representative leadership, and the fact that every leader is to provide something for God's people, and we noted several things. God's care, his teaching, provisions, peace and problem solving among the things that leaders are to provide for God's people. There is another, and that's where we began this morning, and that is leadership is also how God protected his people. In the Old Testament, Joshua, the judges, the kings, protected God's people from their enemies. The wars were physical, and the defense of God's people paramount. The nations around them were a constant threat. See the Philistines. Israel could have been conquered and enslaved and overcome, even destroyed by their enemies, and sometimes they were. The same is true in the New Testament, with a slight difference. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. We have no physical captain, we have no physical army, and we have no physical enemy. And yet the idea of protection remains. It is, number one, the charge of elders. Elders are charged with the spiritual welfare of God's people. Put another way, we might say elders are charged with the spiritual protection of God's people. See it in the Bible. If you have yours, look at Acts chapter 20. And listen to the Apostle Paul have a conversation with elders. He is in Miletus. He has sent for the elders from Ephesus to meet him there. And he begins to relate among them his work and what he has done and what will happen among that group of individuals. He starts in verse 17, though we won't start there for time's sake. But look at verse number 28 and notice what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will men arise, speaking perverse things or twisted things to draw away after uh, disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. 
He says something similar in Titus chapter 1, where again, he's talking about elders. We'll read these two sections and then come back and talk a little bit about each one. In Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9, he says, speaking of elders, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. A few observations about these things from Acts chapter 20. The first thing that's noteworthy is the manner in which these individuals are to shepherd God's flock. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourself. Functioning in this office should be done with carefulness, not carelessness. This is not a glory-seeking position. It is a serving, sacrificing position. Entered into and lived in soberly and cautiously. Number two, it's noteworthy the involvement of divinity in this process. Paul says to those individuals which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's noteworthy to note that the Holy Spirit does not directly choose elders today. God did, in times past, choose people directly to lead his people. He chose Abraham, he chose Moses, Joshua, and others, but not today. Even when God did choose sometimes individuals, he didn't always do that. In the first century, God didn't always choose directly. The Holy Spirit makes elders today by his revelation through the agency of his people. Moses was told, find able men to help you in this task. The apostles told the saints in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, when they had the issue with the distribution among the widows, he said to the, to the disciples, look ye out among yourselves. Paul told Titus in chapter 1 of his book in verse number 5, that I left thee in Crete to ordain elders in every church. Elders are chosen by elders and saints, not directly by the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit has done is given us the qualifications or character traits in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 so that we would know the kind of men to seek when we needed elders to serve. Number three concerning Acts chapter 20 is the precious cargo being overseen. Pay attention to yourselves. And then he says, to the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That which is being overseen are God's chosen people. They are God's children or God's vineyard, God's flock. Jesus purchased possession. If there is something more precious than God's blood-bought children, I don't know what it is. Those who shepherd God's people are charged by God to protect the spiritual well-being of his people. Those things can also be seen from Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9, where Paul again says these same two things. Of elders, he says, they are to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are to teach God's word faithfully and ensure that those they allow to preach to God's people do the same. 
Shepherds are to protect saints from false teacher and false doctrine. The flock must be fed sound doctrine or healthy teaching, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 10, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. The reason for this is much the same way as it was in the Old Testament. The threat is not physical. The threat is spiritual, and the threat is real. There is danger for God's flock. Paul talked to those elders about two ways God's people could be attacked. One of them begins from without, but ultimately it is within. His first concern can be seen in the words he says that grievous wolves would enter. Chapter 20 and verse 29. These wolves are described in a variety of passages throughout the New Testament. Jesus said of them, they are deceptive. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. He referred to them as wolves in sheep's clothing. There is the danger. They don't announce themselves as wolves. They don't tell you we're going to prey on you. They look friendly. They look right. And they enter in in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Peter talked about them in 2 Peter chapter 2. Among other things of them, he describes them as destructive, 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. They are distinguished. You can tell them they are different in what they do and say, verses 3 through 9. They defile and despise, he says of them, 10 to 18. And then they disarm and they destroy. They appear one way, but inside... They have a completely different nature and design. The wolves are also opportunistic, is the way Paul describes them in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. The wording is important. Paul says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Why did Paul know that they would wait till he left? Well, the answer is probably in Philippians 1, verses 15 to 17, where he said, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. We might want to wait till he leaves, and so they do. There is an example of it in Acts chapter 15. Verse number one, the Bible says that these individuals, that some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. If you are teaching the brethren, these men are within. That is the point. They start without, and then they come within. Look at verse number five of Acts 15. Who are these individuals? Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. They were Pharisees. If they had stayed Pharisees, it would have been easy to identify them. We would have known their doctrine, but they didn't stay that way. No, they came in. They now believe. And from the inside, they're saying that you have to be circumcised. Question, what's happening in Acts 15? The elders, the apostles, and the faithful brethren are withstanding that. Paul will say of this meeting in Galatians chapter 2, we didn't give them space, no, not for an hour. They did the very thing we're talking about. Sheep trust elders and preachers from within. And when you gain the sheep's trust, you can lead them astray. 
brethren have written books entitled and with the subject matter of how to change the church. Brethren did that and are doing that. Grievous wolves enter in in sheep's clothing. Well, that's concern number one. But concern number two, Paul says in verse 30 of Acts chapter 20, after talking about the grievous wolves entering in, he says, and from among yourselves shall men arise speaking perverse things. The departure began in the eldership. Departure continues to be perpetuated by elderships because sheep follow where elders lead. And when you put the two thoughts together, it's almost an unimaginable picture that grievous wolves would come in and not sparing the flock, and then shepherds would arise and speak perverse things. And so the wolf and the shepherd are now combined together and conspire against the flock. A sadder scene could not be imagined. And that's what Paul is concerned about. Who's going to prevent that from happening? The charge of elders is to protect the spiritual welfare of Christ's purchased possession. Point number two, the character of elders. We'll read a section of three different passages that concern elders, and then we'll make some summary thoughts about each one. If you have your Bibles and would like to read along, the first one is 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Paul writing to Timothy, and coincidentally, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he tells us why he wrote. It's so that he would know how to behave himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And among the ways to behave is to have elders. Well, what kind of individuals? Beginning in verse number 1, he says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desire the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, not given to, or given to hospitality, not given to wine, apt to teach, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The second passage is Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse number 6, also relating to elders and the eldership. He says there, if any be blameless, husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given the wine, no striker, not given the filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Last passage is 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, where Peter writes, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God that is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, not as being lord over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 
Those three passages, take it in summary, I'd just like to draw out a few points that are applicable in those things that are said in these passages. Among them would be these. Number one, elders are to be pious men. These are individuals who are faithful to God. That is, they are devoted to Jehovah. Men who fear God, they're in awe of Him, they're reverent toward God, their allegiance is to the God of heaven, and it is unwavering. Number two, these are men who are self-controlled. Paul uses the word temperate. His passions are under control. His temperament is under control. He is not easily angered. He is not argumentative. He's not a difficult person. Number three, he's faithful in his family life. He has succeeded in the greatest roles of life any man could hope to accomplish. That is, he is a faithful husband and he is a faithful father. His wife and children submit to and follow him. His wife and children respect him. His success in his own house has made him fit to take care of God's house. One quick note is that God doesn't stop being a good father because some of his children leave his house. Number four, he, love, he loves God's people. He is hospitable. In fact, the scripture says he loves it. He is a lover of hospitality. He is engaging. He is involved. He is approachable. He is a lover of God's people. Genuinely loves souls, especially those of the household of faith. Number five, he's mature in God's word. He's able to teach. He's able to defend the truth. Not a novice. It doesn't demand that he teach a particular subject in an adult class. I've heard some members disgruntled with a particular elder because in their mind, he wasn't able to teach a particular course in an adult curriculum. That's not what this demands. What the verse says is, he's holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. It's not really describing our adult curriculum. It's telling him he needs to be able to do two things. He needs to be able to teach God's Word, and he needs to defend God's Word against those who teach error. Number six, he's honorable in the world. He has a good report from those that are without. His character is good. He pays his bills. He's a good citizen. He's a good neighbor. He's a good boss or employee. He won't bring reproach upon the church by his being a leader in the church. The word blameless is used in both sections of Scripture. doesn't mean that he can't be blamed. It means it's not true. Jesus was blamed, but it wasn't true. People can say and do things, but this is a person who is above the accuracy of the statement. He's contented. Number seven, he doesn't love money. Inevitably, elders will probably deal with money. He doesn't love it. It's not his calling. He's not engaged. He doesn't, he's not greedy for gain. He's honest in his dealings. He's trustworthy. Number eight, he's humble. He submits to God, and he will submit to the eldership. He can receive instruction. He is able and willing to ask for help. He is able to receive help. 
No task is beneath him, and yet he is wise enough to delegate. Number nine, he's ego-free. He won't lord it over God's people. He has no agenda. He's not self-serving. He's fair and even-handed. He can be reasoned with, even shown where he's been wrong. It's not a my way or the highway kind of guy. Number 10, he's a servant. He's emulating the chief shepherd. He esteems others better than himself. He seeks the church's highest good. Our Lord washed his apostles' feet. That's his mindset. He has the mind of Christ. Number 11, he's self-aware. He, he knows that he doesn't have all the answers. He knows himself. He uses his strength, and he seeks to improve his weaknesses. In fact, he knows he has weaknesses. He knows he is part of something bigger than himself. He knows that he will be judged by the chief shepherd. It is noteworthy, friends, that when you and I are privileged to participate in roles and function in ways in which Jesus himself directly engaged, we then are being judged by the one who provided the role and then acted in the role. Jesus is a husband to his church. Husbands should take note of that. Jesus is a shepherd. In fact, Peter refers to him as the chief shepherd. And so a man becoming a shepherd then is going to walk in the role that Christ himself occupied. And he will be judged then by the character of Jesus and the word of Jesus on the subject, and he knows that. Number three, the conduct of elders. First of all, elders are to feed God's sheep. They're to be committed to God's word personally and as an eldership collectively. They are to provide faithful gospel preaching for God's flock. The man hired to preach must be of the same committed mind to God's word as they are. Sound doctrine, healthy teaching must be the order of the day. From the pulpit, classes, every setting and situation where elders oversee and where God's people are being fed and taught, it must be according to truth. Elders provide the environment for that feeding. They provide peace. It must rule. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a congregation when you woke up on Sunday morning and knew you had to go to worship, you didn't want to go because there was no peace there. Elders are charged with maintaining peace. In fact, in that same place, it might be the case that there was no unity there. Elders are charged with maintaining the unity, providing the peace, and having sound doctrine proclaimed. And then they provide opportunities for saints to partake with exhortation and expectation of saints to come and eat. In fact, with regards to this eating, elders and sheep must partner in feeding and eating. Sheep are personally responsible for their faith. Sheep must show up to be fed, and sheep must participate in the work of the Lord. Sheep are to be faithful to God, their families, and the work of the church. Watching for one's soul does not make it make one responsible for your soul. Please understand that. 
What it does is it makes one responsible for watching. If you read Exodus, or Ezekiel rather, chapter 3 and verses 16 to 21, the watchman will be told, I have made you a watchman. Give them warning. If you don't give them warning, I'll hold you accountable for not giving them warning, not for their souls. It is a mistake to believe that elders can do what God can't do. Elders cannot keep saints faithful to God. Elders can't force saints to worship God. Elders can't get saints to heaven. Elders are overseers of God's church. They are a part of God's design and work to help his children. However, saints obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saints are to be faithful to God. Saints are to emulate Jesus. Saints were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What elders are to do is to protect the souls of saints through the environment of faithful teaching and preaching. They're to provide the opportunities and the ability for saints to worship God acceptably in spirit and in truth and to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. But saints are to partner with elders and do their part in this process, and ultimately, they are responsible for their relationship with God. Note that the following exhortations are to saints, not to elders on behalf of saints. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, save yourselves from this untoward generation. He also wrote, desire the sensitive milk of the word that you may grow thereby. He also said, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance. Paul wrote, bring up your children in the admonition, nurture and admonition of the Lord. He also added, husbands, love your wives, and wives, see that you reverence your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Elders aren't responsible for these things. Elders are responsible for feeding God's flock, and we are responsible for eating. Secondly, elders are to lead God's people. There is authority in the eldership. Some suggest that elders don't have any authority, except they only lead by example. That's just not true. First of all, you cannot lead without authority. And secondly, submission is expected where there is leadership. And thirdly, if leaders only led by example, all of the other areas where God placed leadership would fail miserably. And then fourth, the Scripture just doesn't teach it. Consider, first of all, the areas where God placed leadership, and then try the example-only concept. Those areas include government to citizens, parents to children, bosses to employees, elders to members, and husbands to wives. Now then, consider the wording that Scripture uses in each one of these dynamics, and see that it's hardly by example only. Concerning government and citizens, if you were to read Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, you will find words that say you are to obey and submit. Parents to children, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, you are to obey and honor. 
masters to slaves or bosses to employees. It's Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. You are to obey and submit. Husbands to wives, Ephesians 5, 22, Titus 2, 5, submit and obey. Elders to members, Hebrews 13, 17, obey and submit. If every area had no authority except examples, how would one explain these commands? And better yet, how would they be carried out? Notice, if you will, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30 and 31, and see the Bible's teaching on this concept by way of leadership and the expectation thereof. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30 and 31, the Hebrew writer writes, For we know him who said, I'm sorry, go back up to verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Anybody who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy. Go back to the book of Exodus and see why that's stated. It's Exodus chapter 16. You remember as we talked last week about Exodus 3, it was Moses saw the bush burning but not consumed. And as Moses drew near, the voice spoke to the bush. And among the things the voice said is, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And later in that text, he says, I have seen the affliction of my people, and I have come down to deliver them. And then we read in verse 10 that God said, now I will send you. You go, Moses. And so one of the points we made last week is that Moses didn't go out there to become a leader. God made him a leader, and God sent him back. What happened over time is Israel became disgruntled with Moses. And as their leader, they didn't like it. And over time, they began to murmur and complain. And what we're reading is one of those conversations. Notice how Moses couches the, the arrangement. It's Exodus chapter 16. It begins in verse number 6. And Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, And even then ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you out of the land of Egypt. If they had thought it was Moses' idea or Moses' ability or Moses' plan, Moses says, it was not me. It was the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. But go on and notice what he says next. And in the morning, then ye shall see the glory of the Lord. Grab the next phrase. For that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that ye murmur against us? And Moses said, this shall be when the Lord gives you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, note again, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses spake unto Aaron, say unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. That's why the Hebrew writer could say, if you despise Moses' law, well, Moses didn't give the law, and Moses didn't lead the children out of Egypt, God did. And yet, it's described as Moses' law, because if you murmur against Moses, then you murmur against the God who sent Moses and who Moses represents. See it in Numbers chapter 12. Again, another example of this very thing where Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. It's how the Bible describes it in verse number 1 and verse number 2. 
And then in verse number 8, God speaks. Now, God has been speaking about this matter from verse 6 down to verse number 8, but verse 8 for our purposes, notice what God says. Speaking of Moses, he says, with him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Note this end of this verse. Why then, Moses or Aaron and Miriam, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I would ask the same thing. Why wouldn't anyone be afraid to speak against God's arrangement? We counsel children, at least I do. I know children don't always agree with their parents. I know they don't. I know children aren't always happy with their parents. I've been a child, and I've been a parent. I know they're not. And I know sometimes that children know I cannot express my displeasure in front of my parent. So what I'm going to do is go into my room, their room, and I'm going to close the door, and then I'm going to give them what for. Why would we encourage children not to do that? Because even if your parents don't hear it, God does. And God arranged this relationship. We would counsel people who are employees, don't talk about your boss badly. Don't do that. Don't make it difficult in the relationship. Don't point your finger in the boss's face. Don't tell the boss what you are and are not. Don't do that. God arranged it. When pulled over by the authorities, we tell, don't, 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 don't give them a hard time. God ordered the arrangement. Romans chapter 13 reads just that way. When we talk about husbands and wives, we don't tell wives, oh, you got a right to and tell your husband he don't need, we don't tell wives to do that. Not in the Lord's church. We don't because God arranged it. And when it comes to elders, we don't encourage members to go behind closed doors and set up crews and put down the elders and arrange some kind of takeover and we're going to do this despite the elders. We don't do that. Why not? Because God arranged the relationship. And Moses is telling Israel, what are we? God hears your murmurings. God hears your complaints. To Miriam and Aaron, God asked, how are you not afraid to do that? You keep reading that chapter, and Miriam leaves with leprosy. They have authority. What authority do they have? They have the authority to preach the whole counsel of God's word. I should pause here. I didn't do this this morning, but I should pause here and at least say, that I know there is another side to this discussion, but it's not the discussion we're having this morning. There is a side that talks about the leaders or the followers and how they interact and the leaders to the, yes, that's a discussion, not the one we're having this morning. We'll circle back, okay? Okay. What authority then do they have? They have the authority to preach the whole counsel of God's word. 
They have the authority to lead the church in the practice of God's word. This includes church discipline. It includes counsel with expectations to be followed. It includes judging impartially and maintaining unity. They have the authority to impart wisdom and instruction. Elderships should be viewed as repositories of spiritual wisdom and sound judgment. They should be a resource for help in your spiritual growth and maturation. Their wisdom and advice should be sought before, during, and even after decisions are made. Often the counsel of elders can help us avoid trouble at home, at work, at school, and their advice should be heeded and trusted. Our eldership currently consists of six men. If we round and make the median age 60, that is a total of 360 years of wisdom, experience, and spirituality. If we round to 50, for that sounds nicer, then that would be 300 years. There is nothing wrong with you living your own life, not one thing. In fact, God has empowered you to do so. But God has also provided you a help. Individuals who are charged by God to care for and watch for your soul. What they think could be very useful in the decisions you make in your life. They also have the authority in matters of judgment. We can know what authority they have by noting what authority they don't have. They don't have any authority to disobey God. An eldership can't say to a sister, well, we think it's okay for you to preach because we oversee the flock. They have no authority to do that. Elderships don't have authority to add to or take away from God's Word. They don't have authority to change God's Word. They do have authority to carry out God's Word. If God gave a command but didn't specify how it is to be carried out, the elders are charged with the authority to carry out that command. What time do we meet on the Lord's Day? Can't change the day, but the time we can decide. Elderships will decide. When do we partake in the service of the Lord's Supper? Can't change the day, but we can decide when. Elderships can do that. Buildings, do we have them or don't we have them? Pews and chairs and the use of the building and classes and schedules and meetings and speakers and mission points supported and matters of judgment, expediency. These areas, the eldership exercise authority and God expects his people to submit to and obey that authority. A case study, though we didn't ask for it, it just came upon us and the world is the pandemic. It ended up being a great illustration of the authority and decisions of elderships all over the country and the world. It also demonstrated the willingness of God's people to submit to elderships. And I would urge by and large that members, generally speaking, are submissive and obedient to elderships. It demonstrates God's great and wonderful design. Each church is self-governing. Thank God for spiritual elderships. Thank God for faithful Christians. Some elderships and saints shined and showed forth God's glory in the pandemic, and others struggled and suffered. Elders must feed God's sheep, and elders must lead God's people. And then thirdly, elders must retrieve God's sheep. God's sheep are described in many ways in Scripture, and very often the way they're described is they're in peril, they're in danger. In Ezekiel chapter 34, some of those descriptions are set forth. God's sheep are wandering. God's sheep are scattered, verse number 12. Scattered with no shepherd is how Jesus saw them in Matthew 9 and verse 36. And Matthew 10, 5 to 8 even refers to them as lost. 
There is a discussion in Ezekiel 34 about shepherds and sheep. And in verses 1 through 6, the shepherds are destroying the sheep. God is displeased. In verses 7 to 10, God tells the shepherds that he will judge them and deliver his sheep from them. In verses 11 to 16, God says he will deliver his sheep and restore them to their land. They're in captivity. He'll bring them back. In verses 17 to 21 of that chapter, God says he will judge even between sheep and sheep because some of them are mistreating each other. Notice the words, though, in verses 22 to 24 of that chapter. God says, among other things, he will be their shepherd. He said, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. After that, he says, I'll make a covenant with peace with them. And he ends the chapter by restating, thus shall they know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God. Ye are my flock, the flock of my pasture are men. I am your God, saith the Lord. Here is the point. That section of Scripture has two points being made, the first of which is, in an immediate sense, God says, I'm going to bring them back from captivity. They are now suffering and scattered, and you shepherds are doing a, a horrible job. I'm going to be their shepherd. I'm going to bring them back. But then secondly, there's a prophecy in there. He says of them, I will set up one shepherd. He names that shepherd as David. That's a reference to Jesus. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I shall be with them. God says, I will come and search for the lost myself, my scattered and lost sheep. When Jesus came to earth, he refers to himself as the good shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse number 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But listen to what else he says. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I also must bring in, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Peter twice refers to Jesus as the shepherd. 1 Peter 2.25, ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. 1 Peter 5 and verse number 4, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Why tell you this? Because there might be a misunderstanding about the idea of lost sheep. In Luke chapter 15, the good shepherd gives a parable and he talks about sheep. And among the things that he says is he talks about those that are lost, and he also talks to shepherds. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them, and he spake this parable unto them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go and, find, and search for that which is lost until he find it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, he rejoices, he comes home, he calls together his, his friends and neighbors, saying unto me, Rejoice with me, for I have found that which was lost. I say unto you, likewise, there should be joy in heaven over one sinner that repented more than over ninety-nine just persons that needed no repentance. Here is Jesus talking to shepherds, and he says effectively, it's normal for shepherds to seek for lost sheep. 
the shepherds the Lord is talking to have lost animals, and as a result of that, they're seeking them. But listen, friends, the parable isn't about animals. It's about people. Verse 1, verse 2, the publicans and sinners with whom he's eating. What elders do and what shepherds do is they take their cue from the chief shepherd. The bishop of souls came to earth to seek the lost. Christ died for the sins of the world and made all things ready for his sheep to return. Christ's point in the parable is that men who shepherd animals care enough to seek them when they are lost, love them enough to rejoice when they are found, consider them enough to pick them up and play them on their shoulders and carry them back to the fold, and then rejoice over them enough to call their friends and invite them to rejoice too. God does the same thing for humanity. God cared enough to send Christ. Christ loved enough to die for us. Christ rose, ascended, and rules, and thus Christ commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and God rejoices over one sinner who repents. Dig down a little deeper. The analogy is between God's actions toward humanity, verse 1 and verse 2, and man's actions toward animals. What, are, what does this have to do with elders in the church and lost sheep? Look there at Luke 15 and look at verse 4 down to verse number 7. The discussion about animals, this transition is different between humans and animals. In, 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 in verses 4 through 7, the shepherd has lost an animal and he goes out seeking and searching for the animal until he finds it. And when he finds it, he picks it up, he puts it on his shoulder, even if it was baying and disagreeing about coming. It has no choice. He picks it up, brings it to his bosom, and he walks it back to the fold. Let me ask you a question. Can elders do that with God's sheep? The role of elders needs to be understood in the concept of lost sheep. Three things stand out with regards to this. First of all, people read the parable, and it's only one parable, and they read where the, the people who lost the sheep left the 99 and went in search until they found it. And then they read of the woman who lost the coin, and she swept the house and garnished it, and she did not until she found it. And then they come to the boy, and you see a difference, or do you? Chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 2, the father stays home in that section of the parable. The boy is in the far country. And so it leads some people to believe that the shepherd in this instance didn't go seek, but that's actually not the case. Who's given the parable? The chief shepherd is giving the parable. Where is he when he's giving it? He has come to earth. He is accused of eating with sinners and receiving them. Yes, yes, and yes. God said, I will come and I will be their shepherd. That's Ezekiel 34. I will set up one shepherd over them. He shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Secondly, humans are not animals. The analogies and the metaphors are only intended to go so far. When you transition from an animal to a human, there are things that are going to be different. 
Humans have volition. They have choice and freedom and will. Even the chief shepherd respects that, which is why in the parable, the father stays home. Elders have to do the same thing. In fact, listen to what the shepherd of the animal says. He says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I lost it, I went out there, I found it, and I picked it up, and I put it on my shoulder, and I brought it home, and now it's back. Now listen to what the shepherd of souls says. In response to that, he says, I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repented, more than over 90 or 9 just persons which need no repentance. How did the boy get home in the parable? Luke chapter 15, verses 17 to 21, Luke tells us, and when he came to himself, he said, I will arise and go home to my father. His father didn't go get him because men aren't animals. What his father did was provide the home he left. He provided the environment. He loved him and he never stopped. He longed for him to come home and he looked for him and when he saw him, he ran to meet him. He received him, he rejoiced because of him, he restored him, the ring, the robe, the shoes, the calf, the celebration, all for him. My son was dead and is alive. If you are a sheep in the Lord's flock, why are you lost? Thirdly, elders must provide peace, maintain unity, preach the truth in the feeding of souls. And as they do that, it might be the case that they see you struggling, and so they're to care enough for your soul to try to reach out to you if you struggle. If they see you or know that you are beginning to wander and to drift and move away, they are to watch out for you, reach out to you, exhort you, reprove you, even if necessary, rebuke you. But it is a grave mistake to think that elders are on the hook for your faith. Jesus has come. He has saved you. You obeyed the gospel. You have been delivered from darkness, rescued from sin, purchased by his blood, saved by the Savior. He is your shepherd. So why are you lost again? Sinners. Repent. They aren't grabbed, they aren't picked up, they aren't held, and they aren't brought back to the fold against their will. No, they're not. Elders can't do that. And the truth is, we wouldn't want them to if they could. There is joy over one sinner that repents than over 99 just persons that need no repentance. The whole point of the parable is just that. 15, 1 and 2, the elder brother is the one who didn't rejoice over the publicans and sinners return home to the Father. The elders and the eldership, I've kept you longer than I intended, 
It's one of those things, though, like you eat five cookies and you say, I was only going to eat two. And then you eat five and you say, well, you reach a point in the sermon where you look back and you say, well, I've already kept them over. Well, so sorry we're in that well. <laughs> sorry. I did want to get to these practical things because I just think you should know it. God's design of his church is so wonderful, his wisdom so good, that God has put checks and balances to keep the safety and well-being of his people. And what he has done is provide an eldership, but he's provided more than that. Even with the eldership, one of the things he's done is he's limited the sphere of their oversight. Every congregation is self-governing. Elders oversee the flock among them, 1 Peter 5, 2. Therefore, if one eldership leads a congregation astray, it doesn't affect other congregations. That's a blessing from God. Second, the charge of elders. Take heed to yourself and to all the flock. The eldership is a safeguard for the elders. Because the eldership consists of a plurality of individuals who are mature, faithful, pious, committed to the faith of God. Collectively, they comprise the eldership. But the check and balance is this. Each individual submits to the eldership. The first people the eldership oversee are the elders within the eldership. Each man has a charge to submit to and help ensure the faithfulness of the eldership. The charge is for the good of the congregation. The eldership is the safeguard for the congregation, and no single elder is above the eldership. And if an individual won't submit to the eldership, he needs to be removed from the eldership or never allowed in. Third, eldership is a safeguard from preachers going off. Preachers are part of the flock being overseen. Elder shepherd preachers. If preachers go off, if the wolves come in and start to speak perverse things, then elders are to withstand that individual. But let's say he's hired already and he started out one way and began to change. Well, then elders counsel that man, they correct that man, they withstand that man, or, and if necessary, they eventually denounce that man. Deacons serve to help elders from leading the flock astray. And while our sermon is not about deacons, Philippians 1.1 says saints, overseers, and deacons. And we didn't take the time to read the qualifications of deacons, but these are not men who are wholly given to physical things. It describes their character being largely like elders. These are spiritual men, mature men, sound in the faith, committed to God and His Word. And if men in the eldership arise speaking perverse things, the individual elders should step up, the saints should step up, and the deacons should step up and say, no, sir, we will not go astray. Fifth, preachers are a safeguard. While elders oversee the flock, preachers don't. Preachers... Uh, are committed to the Word of God. Elders have the oversight, but they're not rogue rulers with no restraint. The charge of preachers inevitably and ultimately is to help in case elders should begin to go astray. What do preachers do? They preach the Word faithfully. 
in that preaching of the Word, they train other men. They equip the saints in that preaching. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Timothy. That's a preacher. In verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's a preacher. And then he says, preach the Word and do what? Be urgent about it. To whom? To the entire flock. Elders are a part of that. Preachers are to do it in such a way that they are to equip other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What is all of that about? We're supposed to help each other stay faithful. It should be exceedingly difficult to get a collection of God's saints to go astray, to get a collection of God's deacons to go astray to get a collection of God's elders to go astray, and to get a preacher to go astray. It should be nearly impossible, given the checks and the balances that God has put in place to save and protect his people. The eldership, they don't lead by popular opinion. These are spiritual individuals in character and disposition. They are not extremists. But they are mature. They don't choose between love or truth. They manifest both. They don't choose obedience or mercy. They give both. They don't choose between progress and tradition. They embrace both. They are open-minded, but they're not empty-headed. They care for souls, God's people and the lost. They respect liberty. They don't go beyond their authority but they make the hard decisions. They have the difficult conversations. They tell members no as well as yes. They share some things, but not all things. They care, they love, they serve. They will not always be liked. Their decisions will not always be popular. Their choices won't always be agreed with, but they are men of courage and conviction who set a course for right and truth, and they march toward it. They have strength and the support of each other in the eldership. And frankly, as members, we should thank them. They are not perfect. They're faithful. They grow also, and they learn, and they improve. Little children sometimes grow up in godly homes, and in the immediacy, they don't always see the reasoning, the things that parents do. They don't always agree with the decisions that are made, but when they reach maturity, they look back on their lives, and maybe it's about the time where they've grown sufficiently to have their own families. Typically what they do is they see the sacrifices made, the attempts to help and not harm, and they come back to their parents and they say, thank you. I appreciate all those times you said no. I had no idea. I appreciate what you were doing when you did that. I see it now. They come back and they respect and love their parents. The same is true for God's spiritual children. You become a child of God. Let's say you do that at 11, 12, 13 years old. It's very likely if you're in a congregation like this one or some others that there are already elders in place. 
And what that means is if those men served 20, 30, 40, 50 years and you stayed in that congregation, those individuals would be nearly directly involved in the support of your home and in the help of providing the environment of a faithful congregation nearly all of your life. You grow up to appreciate the sacrifices made, how much of their lives they've given, how much they've taken away from their family and their time, and how much their lives and their families have sacrificed for that and for you. Shouldn't somebody say thank you? Shouldn't somebody say we appreciate that? Shouldn't somebody say I had no idea what you did for me? I can tell you that somebody, God does. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, he says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. We have individuals who both preach and shepherd, and he says especially, but he says those who rule well, all elders who rule well, worthy of double honor. Very often, they don't get much of any. We need to, and we ought to. It might be the case that you're not a Christian this morning. We'd invite you to become one, and here is just one more reason. The design of the Lord's church is unlike any other religious organizations. That's not how men do it. Men are much more comfortable with one-person rule. You'll do it my way. Or they enact their own board of governors, and they'll oversee the whole group not the Lord's church, men from among ourselves, faithful, committed husbands, fathers, Christians who love the Lord, committed to his cause, demonstrating it in their lives, shepherding our souls. Not a member become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Change your heart, change your mind. The Bible calls it repentance. Confess his name, be immersed in water, forgiven for your sins through baptism, and let God save you. Jesus is called the shepherd of your soul. Would you put yours under his care this morning? For those of us who are, let us live in such a way as to give glory to God, honoring what he has designed, and let it be a blessing to us all and us to them. We can help you in any way. Thank you so much for your kind attention as we stand and as we sing.